this man podcast this is the podcast that's trying to figure out who jesus of nazareth was and what it means to follow him my name is dryden and i'm your host Then some of the Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus in order to trap him in a statement. They said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a Daenerys to look at. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. This verse shows up a lot when Christians talk about uh, the relationship between the church and state. Um, It's usually taken as evidence that Christians should still be good citizens, we should still pay our taxes, we should still obey the laws of the land, etc. And I don't think that's entirely wrong to interpret this story this way, but there's a lot going on here that I think doesn't get paid attention to very often, and it really sets an interesting tone for the relationship between Uh, essentially Jesus and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Caesar, or more specifically, the Roman Empire. First of all, the text itself says that the Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus. Um, Now, how was this going to be a trick? Essentially, one of two things was going to happen. Either Jesus was going to say, yes, you should still pay taxes to Caesar, And if he said this, then he was probably going to lose some face with his Jewish supporters because, like we've talked about in previous episodes, Jesus' Jewish supporters were more or less hoping for a real change in their current political situation. Um, They were currently under essentially a military occupation by Rome. And if Jesus would have said, yeah, no, you should still pay your taxes to Caesar— Um, this likely would have been a disappointment to some of his followers. They would have thought, well, okay, if we're still going to be paying taxes to Caesar, then what value is being, you know, part of Jesus's, you know, kingdom of God, so to speak. The other option would be that Jesus would say, no, don't pay your taxes to Caesar. And if he would have said this, this would have essentially established him as an anti-government insurrectionist. It would have given his opponents much more leverage to persecute him. It would have given the Romans much more reason to persecute him, especially. So, by just saying, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and render unto God's that which is God's, uh, we can't assume that Jesus was just saying, yeah, you should still pay your taxes. Because if that was all that he was saying, then 
that wouldn't have amazed the Pharisees. That would have been one of their expected outcomes for Jesus just to say, yeah, no, people should still pay their taxes. Instead, there's something much deeper going on here. And it has to do with this question that Jesus asks uh, about the image. So Jesus asks the crowd to bring him a Daenerys, which was a Roman coin. And he says, whose likeness is on this coin? And of course, it's Caesar's image that was stamped on the coin. That's, you know, that's as old as the hills, the idea that we stamp our leaders' faces on our currency. So Jesus says, okay, Caesar's image is on the coin. Now, the Greek word that is used here for image, uh, again, um, we can't possibly exegete these texts without looking at the original language being used. So the Greek term that's being used here is this Greek word icon, which is where we get the English word icon. It essentially means image or, you know, visual representation. Um, What's very notable, um, especially for understanding Jesus's response, is that if we look at the Septuagint, which we've talked about in the previous episodes, this is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which would have been circulated around uh, Jesus's community and um, other Jewish communities of Jesus's day. Icon is the Greek word that is used in uh, in the first pages of Genesis when God creates humanity, and it says God created humanity in His image. Uh, the Greek word that's used there in the Septuagint is icon, which is the same term that Jesus is using here in His interaction with the Pharisees. So, whose icon is on the coin? Caesar. Okay. Surrender so unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Caesar's image is on the money. Caesar can control the money. But then Jesus says, render unto God that which is God's. So if Caesar owns the money because his image is on it, the implication here is that God owns the human beings because his image is on them. So Jesus is not just saying here, pay your taxes. He's saying, yes, Caesar can control the money. That's fine. His image is on it. But God's image is on the human beings. And this is why Jesus' answer, it says in the text, amazed the Pharisees. Because because Jesus is sort of dodging their question by saying, yeah, sure, the taxes and the money and and the finances, Caesar can worry about that. That belongs to Caesar. But he's also putting, he's also putting a limit on Caesar's authority, saying the human beings don't belong to Caesar at the end of the day. He's really calling Caesar's authority into question, And without saying it directly, he's basically implying that the authority of Caesar, even if Caesar controls the money and the military and uh, the political power of the Roman Empire, his authority is nothing compared to the authority of God, which is now arriving in the person of Jesus. At least that's what the Gospel of Mark would want us to believe. You'll probably remember how a couple episodes ago we talked about the meaning of the gospel. How in the modern Christian world we probably think of gospel as being this kind of uh, spiritual truth of Christianity. Something along the lines of, you know, Jesus died for your sins but he rose again and we get to go to heaven when we die or something like that. Uh, But we talked a couple episodes ago about how the term gospel in the ancient world actually had very imminent, like, this-worldly implications. 
Uh, it was a term that was used, uh, like we talked about, it was used um, It was used in regards to Caesar. It was a term which referred to essentially the victory of Caesar, the political might of Caesar, and the military might of the Roman Empire. It was like, hey, here's, here's good news. You're under the rule of Caesar Augustus, and you're safe now, and you're part of the Roman Empire. Um, and so when Mark uses this term gospel and applies it to Jesus... It's really, I think, intentionally setting up a conflict here between uh, the powers of this world and uh, the kingdom of God. And when I talk about the kingdom of God, I'm not talking about um, some otherworldly place where we go when we die. I know that's kind of a common uh, kind of lay Christian belief that when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he was talking about our he was talking about our post mortem destiny. Uh, unfortunately, that's not biblical at all. You will find pretty much no support for that in anywhere in the Bible. The idea that Jesus was talking about a, a post mortem destination when he talked about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven uh, that doesn't mean we don't have hope in in the face of death. Um, that's not at all. I can't possibly talk about that right now. I'd get off on a huge tangent. But uh, what I want us to see is that Mark is setting up a very stark contrast between following Caesar and the gospel of Caesar and following the gospel of Jesus. Uh, you can't worship two gods. You can't serve two masters, as Jesus himself says. So, Lately, I've been reading quite a bit about the early church in in the Roman world. Um, shortly after Jesus's uh, death and resurrection, you know, the, the communities of Jesus followers that sprouted up around the ancient world, and uh, most of whom were under the authority of Rome. And it's common knowledge that the Christians were heavily persecuted in Rome um, to varying extents over the years until Rome itself became uh, Christian power, which, I mean... There's a lot we could say about that, but but I recently read a book by uh, a New Testament scholar and and an ancient historian by the name of Dr. Larry Hurtado, who has unfortunately just passed away um, just a couple years ago, I believe. But uh, this book, I I was immediately attracted to it because it had a really cool title. Um, the title was Destroyer of Gods, which I thought was cool because it sounds like a heavy metal album. Um, but what this book was essentially about was why Christianity stood out in the ancient Roman world and why Christianity faced persecution in the Roman world. Um, and it's not, it, it's not for the reasons that you might expect. See, I think a lot of Christians, especially today, and this shows up in all sorts of modern uh, social and political situations, I think Christians today have this idea that you know, throughout history, Christians have been persecuted simply for believing um, that Jesus died and, and rose again. And that might be true in certain contexts, but that wasn't necessarily true in ancient Rome. Caesar, and I'm using Caesar here just to refer to the entire Roman uh, imperial political establishment. Um, Caesar wouldn't have cared if there were just these weird little groups that were starting to worship this guy, Jesus. Okay, the people in Rome already worshipped several gods. It wouldn't have bothered Caesar just to have 
one more added to the mix that some, uh, you know, some crazy people were gathering in houses and worshipping this guy named Jesus. That alone wouldn't have been a problem for Caesar. In fact, the Roman Empire probably had a lot of that going on, a lot of those sorts of groups. But the, the reason it became a problem was because the early Christians were refusing to give allegiance to Caesar or the allegiance that Caesar demanded. Um, there's, there's a lot of evidence. There's some interesting correspondence, uh, like ancient letters that were written back and forth between um, Roman uh, politicians that were trying to figure out how to deal with this problem of Christianity. And you can tell they're kind of exasperated by it because they don't want it to be an issue. The Roman Empire at this point in time had bigger fish to fry. I mean, they were the biggest imperial power the world had ever seen. They were conquering new lands. They were at war with barbarian tribes. They, they had their own economic crises and, you know, civil wars going on. They had bigger fish to fry. They didn't want to have to be spending energy dealing with these weird little religious groups like the Christians. And so you find this interesting correspondence between uh, Roman politicians and Roman military officials where they're basically saying, like, I don't know what to do. Like, I've tried to be nice to these Christians. I've, you know, tried to give them every opportunity to, you know, um, just just still be allegiant to Caesar. Like, they, like, you know, there's this idea that, like, we've given the Christians every ounce of mercy that we can give them. But if they would just give homage to Caesar, if they would just, you know, recite this few lines that, you know, give homage or allegiance to Caesar, if they would just throw a little bit of incense on this fire in honor of Caesar, uh, then we could leave them alone. But these Roman officials were exasperated because the Christians wouldn't do that. They would not give an ounce of divine authority to Caesar. And see, even the title Son of God, which Mark uses to describe Jesus, this was a title which was used in Rome to describe Caesar. And so I think there's a lot going on when Mark uses the term Son of God, and I don't think that's 100% a political term. I think there's probably some um, shall we say religious symbolism going on there as well, but we can't assume that that wasn't meant as a little bit of a slap in the face to this figure of Caesar who was claiming this divine authority, was claiming to be sort of a god person himself, um, and then here come these Christians saying, no, actually Caesar isn't the son of God, um, Caesar is not Lord, only Jesus is Lord. And this term Lord, uh, in Greek it's kurios, uh, again, I think in the modern world we spiritualize this, just like we spiritualize the term kingdom of God and the term Messiah, you know. We think that these refer to, like, spiritual authorities. But this was not, this was not a spiritual term. This was a term, kurios, that was used in the ancient world to describe Caesar. Uh, and now it's being applied to Jesus. It would be like if some random dude started calling himself the prime minister. Uh, that's not a spiritual term. That's that's a political term that we recognize. Maybe that's a bad example because Kyrios wasn't, you know, a title of an office, same way that prime minister is. But 
essentially, this term kurios, when it's applied to Jesus, it invokes a level of political authority, which I think a lot of Christians today don't really think about. I, I heard someone say once, uh, I forget who this was, if this was a professor or just a friend or something, someone said, in the ancient world, if you said that Jesus was Lord, you were also saying that Caesar was not Lord. And that's why the Christians got in trouble. Uh, not specifically for that title, although I'm sure it didn't help, but it was this refusal to acknowledge that Caesar had any of the divine authority that he was claiming. Um, that is what got the early Christians persecuted. That's what got them in trouble. It wasn't that Caesar just had it out for anyone who, you know, had their own religion or had their own. The Roman Empire was a huge and diverse empire made up of multiple different ethnic groups. Uh, it, they were used to people having their own kind of weird little beliefs. That wasn't the biggest fish that they had to fry. The issue was that the Christians would not acknowledge the authority of Caesar or the divine legitimacy of Caesar because they believed that that authority belonged only to Jesus. So again, I would highly recommend uh, Larry Hurtado's book. Again, it's called Destroyer of Gods. Um, great book, really interesting history of uh, early Christianity. In order to uh, more deeply understand uh, this Roman political context that this, uh, this person of Jesus, this message of the kingdom of God was being preached, it would be useful to understand something uh, which scholars refer to as civil religion. Uh, civil religion is uh, essentially a fusion of religious beliefs with political ideologies and with the day-to-day -day functioning of, uh, of a government. Um, I'm going to be quoting here from a New Testament scholar, uh, Dr. Michael J. Gorman. Um, this is from a book which is specifically about the book of Revelation, which is a book that I would love to get to eventually in this podcast and do a whole series of episodes on. Um, I have a lot to say about the book of Revelation, but we're not there yet. So uh, without getting into the book of Revelation, uh, I am just going to quote from Michael J. Gorman, and I'll put a link to this book uh, in and the other books that I've talked about in the show notes, uh, so you can check them out if you're interested. Uh, but Michael J. Gorman understands uh, civil religion as follows. He says, When secular power is deemed sacred and worthy of devotion and allegiance— the result is the phenomenon of civil religion, which may be defined as follows. The attribution of sacred status to secular power, normally the state and or its head, as the source of divine blessing, reacquiring devotion and allegiance of heart, mind, and body to the sacred secular power and its values, all expressed in various narratives, other texts, rituals, and media, that reinforce both the secular power's sacred status and the beneficiary's sacred duty of devotion and allegiance, even to the point of death. So this is how we should understand, I think, the way that 
uh, Caesar functioned in the ancient Roman world. Caesar was a political figure. He was uh, the both the literal and figural head of the Roman government. And yet there was this whole realm of almost religious sacred beliefs that were attributed to Caesar. And that kind of fueled Caesar's power. Uh, the Romans, generally speaking, believed that their power was divinely given. It was given to them by the gods, and the gods wanted them to be in that position of authority over Rome. And of course, the Romans worshipped many gods. Uh, the Roman gods basically served as um, divine embodiments of the things that the Romans valued. Um, their military might, warfare, uh, finances, you know, their, their economic wealth, uh, the financial benefit that they gained uh, from being the largest empire in the world, uh, the largest empire the world had ever seen. Uh, these were the things that we see embodied in the Roman gods. Um, you know, they worshipped the god of war, the god, you know. Uh, the gods essentially served as, like, divine embodiments of the things that the Romans valued. And Caesar basically was viewed as a divine figure among the other Roman gods. And as such, there was this narrative in Rome that the gods wanted Rome to have the success that they were having. There was this idea of the Pax Romana, which is a Latin phrase, which literally means the Roman peace, uh, basically referring to this idea that it, it, was, it was a good thing for the Roman Empire to expand because every people group, every nation that was under Roman control, uh, that nation then was going to be experiencing peace because no one else was going no one was going to be fighting them. No one was going to be waging war against them if they were under Roman control and Roman protection. So there was almost this idea in the Roman world that it was good for them to be expanding because they were bringing peace to the world. And, of course, because the Romans brought some very early forms of democracy to the table, um, there was this idea that, you know, oh, we have this respect for freedom, we have this respect for human liberty. Uh, of course, I mean, we would question that looking back at some of the things they did in hindsight. But, you know, for the time, they would compare themselves to the barbarian tribes which surrounded them. And they would think, yeah, the gods want us to spread our prosperity and our wealth and our power throughout the world and bring peace and unity to the world. Uh, and this, this was seen as sort of a divine ordinance of Rome. And this is what uh, Dr. Michael Gorman is tapping into here, this idea that the military power and the political power and the political establishment of Rome were fused with these divine beliefs and to be loyal to Caesar was kind of synonymous with being loyal to God or, or the gods in the case of Rome. So this is why Larry Hurtado, uh, the scholar I talked about earlier, uh, this is why he called his book, the destroyer of gods, because this is essentially the narrative that Christianity interrupted in the Roman world. Christianity comes onto the scene and all of a sudden people aren't convinced that Caesar is going to bring peace to the world. People aren't convinced that Caesar is, is the son of God or that he has any divine legitimacy to rule over the entire known world. Uh, all of a sudden this unknown 
Jewish man from the province of Judea uh, is kind of coming out of nowhere. And people are giving the allegiance to him that they should be giving to Rome. Uh, And as a result, they're not worshiping the Roman gods. They're not paying homage to Caesar. They're not willing to defend or die for the Roman Empire anymore. That allegiance has now gone to Jesus. And it totally upends this whole power structure of Rome. And like I said earlier, it wasn't just the private, spiritual, religious beliefs which Caesar had a problem with. It was the fact that this this belief, this particular group of people, the Christians, were refusing to buy into this divine narrative that was fueling the power of Rome. When Mark opens his gospel, or when he when he opens his gospel by using this term gospel to describe Jesus... He is declaring that Jesus is now the king who is bringing peace and prosperity and and unity to the world through the kingdom of God. And he was taking this title away from Caesar. I can't stress this enough. This was completely contradictory to everything that Caesar would have wanted for his subjects. Now, I've been talking exclusively about Rome, but uh, if you've been reading between the lines here with me, Uh, you have probably noticed that uh, these sorts of narratives and these ideologies which fueled fueled Rome's military expansion and which fueled uh, Rome's political and economic might, these sorts of narratives haven't gone anywhere. These narratives are still very present in the world today. I'm not going to... I don't want to make anyone mad, so I'm not going to name any names specifically... I'm not going to say which countries are guilty of this, but there is very much so a narrative that is present in our world that God has chosen a specific group of people, a specific political entity to bring peace and justice and freedom to the world, even if that requires military action and even if people have to die to make that happen. Now, what's very interesting is that Uh, The Roman Empire eventually converted to Christianity. Uh, It eventually, uh, Christianity eventually became the state religion of Rome. Now, I'll leave it up to you to decide um, how exactly we should feel about that as followers of Jesus. Uh, But what we can observe based on the history of Rome after its conversion to Christianity was that these core narratives didn't really go anywhere. It was just now, instead of the Roman gods that were giving legitimacy to Rome, it was the Christian god. It was Jesus uh, who was giving this legitimacy to Rome. Uh, Instead of saying, oh yeah, you know, our gods and Caesar want us to conquer and spread peace and spread prosperity, uh, now the narrative was, well, Jesus wants us to conquer and spread prosperity and spread wealth And this is why all up through the Middle Ages, um, you know, you have instances of, of, you know, Christian powers, uh, even after the fall of the Roman Empire, even into the Middle Ages, uh, Christian powers invading, you know, pagan lands where uh, Jesus was not yet being worshipped and basically threatening people to either convert to Christianity or die. 
Uh, this is something that happened several, several times throughout ancient and into medieval history, uh, where essentially Jesus and the God of the Bible came to function the same way that the Roman gods had functioned in the Roman Empire. And you can go even farther back, you know, the same way that the Babylonian gods functioned in the Babylonian Empire. You know, the, the gods may change, but this narrative stays the same. That, you know, we are currently the dominant imperial power in the world, and our god has ordained for us to spread you know, our kingdom throughout the world through imperial military means. Now, once Rome became a Christian state, uh, it started to be Jesus that filled that role. Um, having seen everything that we've seen about how the kingdom of God narrative presented in the New Testament uh, upends the divine narratives which were fueling Roman military expansion. Um, it, it It's very interesting to think, like, how would Jesus actually feel about that? How would Jesus actually feel about the Roman Empire deciding, okay, yeah, we're a Christian power now. Okay, that much is cool. But now we're just going to use this power to legitimize all the same things that we were doing before. We're just now, instead of the Roman gods, now it's Jesus. Um, I'm not going to, I'm I'm not going to say anything. I don't think it's my place right now to um, explicitly state how I feel about that. I'm just, just putting it out there as food for thought. Um, but this, this idea of civil religion that I've talked about, um, it hasn't gone anywhere. It is still very present in the world today, even though it's now often the God of the Bible who fills that role. Uh, rather than the pagan gods of the ancient world. Um, and we see this, again, I'm not going to name any names, we see this in modern political movements and modern political powers, this idea that God has chosen us to spread peace and prosperity um, and you know freedom and justice throughout the world, even if people have to die for us to make that happen. Um I am going to, rather than speaking my own mind, I'm going to quote from uh, Dr. Michael Gorman from this same book. So if you disagree with Dr. Gorman, I'm sure he would love to hear from you. So first, Dr. Gorman outlines three main beliefs that would have underlied Roman civil religion uh, before Rome's conversion to Christianity. Uh, These three core beliefs are, first of all, that the gods have chosen Rome, Second, that Rome and its emperor are agents of the God's rule, will, salvation, and presence among human beings. And third, that Rome manifests the God's blessings, which include security, peace, justice, faithfulness, fertility, among those who submit to Rome's rule. And here, Dr. Gorman is talking about the relationship between the civil religion that we see when we look at ancient Rome and... uh, what we might call civil religion in today's world. So this is Dr. Gorman. He says, One major difference, however, and this is between today's world and the ancient world, uh, one major difference, however, is extremely important to recognize. The syncretism of Rome's civil religion involved the blending of Roman ideology and pagan religiosity. But the syncretism of American civil religion 
involves the blending of American ideology and Christian, or at least theistic and quasi-Christian, religiosity. The early church had a natural suspicion of Roman civil religion because it was so blatantly pagan and idolatrous, though even it could be appealing. Contemporary Christians can much more easily assume that Christian or quasi-Christian ideas, language, and practices are benign and even divinely sanctioned. This makes American civil religion all the more attractive, that is, all the more seductive and dangerous. Its fundamentally pagan character is masked by its Christian veneer. So I think what Dr. Gorman is saying here uh, is incredibly valuable. I think he's pointing out that uh, this narrative, the, uh, this this gospel of the world, so to speak, this idea that you know worldly powers such as Caesar uh, can bring us peace and prosperity and freedom, uh, this gospel of the world is fundamentally at odds with the gospel of Jesus, which is that the kingdom of God has arrived through the person of Jesus and God and Jesus alone deserve our worship and allegiance. Uh, you know, this this uh, feud between these two gospels, uh, it was present in the ancient world quite starkly because the ancient political establishments were fueled by other gods. Uh, but it's just as much present in the world today, even though certain worldly powers today uh use this same kind of narrative but do so under the guise of Christianity but Dr. Gorman argues and I would agree with him that it is no less dangerous today just because it pretends to be Christian on the outside Uh, at the end of the day the gospel of Jesus at least as it's lined out in the gospel of Mark and as it's lined out in the other gospel accounts as well as we'll see in future episodes is fundamentally opposed to this gospel of Caesar. Like Jesus says, we sh- we can render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. You know, the money and the military, sure, they belong to Caesar, they have Caesar's image on them. But the human beings and the world and creation have God's image on them. And at the end of the day, Caesar's authority is nothing in comparison to the authority of God, which is made present on earth through the person of Jesus. And that's, I think, what Mark would want us to see.